Hey, hey, this is John Goldman. You're listening to Johnny's Secret Stash on Radio Harbor Country, WRHC 106.7 FM out of Three Oaks, Michigan, and 93.5 WRHZ out of Sawyer, Michigan. And I'm broadcasting here from the uh, beautiful uh, WRHC studios in Sawyer, Michigan on a uh, somewhat snowy day. We're expecting a big storm to come through. Uh, but today I'm going to be interviewing Tony Denunzio, who's a native of Detroit, and he directed and produced the movie Louder Than Love, the story of the Grande Ballroom in Detroit. Uh, looking forward to talking with him today. In uh, advance of uh, talking to Tony, I'm going to play a song from one of my favorite Michigan artists who uh, had a presence at the Grande Ballroom in Detroit None other than Iggy Pop from uh, Ypsilanti, Michigan. Here's uh, the, the Stooges with I Want to Be Your Dog. Yeah, that was uh, Iggy Pop and the Stooges with uh, I Want to Be Your Dog. And uh, Iggy Pop, a, um, uh, a re- uh, you know, uh, from the Michigan, Ypsilanti area, but uh, famous for his, uh, his presence uh, throughout Michigan and that, that Detroit sound. Uh, and he was uh, one of the early players from the Grande Ballroom, which was basically open from 1966 and 1972. But we'll let Tony Denunzio tell us more about that and his movie, Louder Than Love, which, by the way, is going to be playing at the Acorn Theater. It's going to be the first movie to be played at the Acorn Theater on the new digital projector that they have there. And that's 
February 11, 2022. If you don't have your tickets, go get them. Tony Denunzio, I have Tony Denunzio on the line, and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming oh, on. My pleasure. Thank you for, for letting me be part of this. This is great. Well, as I had mentioned earlier, Tony is the director and producer of the uh, 2012 film Louder Than Love. Uh, it, it's about the Grande Ballroom in Detroit, which, um, from what I understand, was open as a rock venue from 1966 to 1972, but it was actually built in uh, like 1927. How did you uh, how did you get involved in this? Because from my calculations, you were born in 1965, which would have only made you about four or five years old by the time yeah. the place opened up. And <laughs> yep, yep. Well, um, yep. You're right on a couple facts there. So um, the the and it's pronounced Grandy, so just right off the bat, um, it's a okay. Grandy Ballroom, yeah. And um, it, uh, it opened originally in the late 20s as a large ballroom um, for big bands and for dancing and stuff like that. It had a few incarnations throughout its lifespan. It, it was uh, um, a ballroom and a dance hall during the 40s and, um, and then into the 50s, and then uh, resurfaced as a roller skating rink that plays into the movie a little bit. And then, um, and then it shut down for a little bit. And then in, uh, 66, um, a, uh, local, uh, DJ school teacher, Russ Gibb, um, took a trip out West to San Francisco to visit a friend of his and got introduced to the, uh, Fillmore out in San Francisco, the original one. Uh And, um, and went to it and was just blown away at the, um, what was going on there it was totally different than what he had seen back in Detroit. He had been putting on kind of like um, small um, teen hops and, and dances and stuff like that with his DJ, uh, you know, uh, radio business, stuff like that. But nothing, you know, he had, when he got there, everything was totally different than what he had expected and, and kind of brought that idea. Got, um, had conversation with Bill Graham, who is a proprietor and uh-huh, went on to be one of the biggest, yeah, biggest promoters and rock and roll face of, of uh, rock and roll from the 60s and 70s. And um, he uh, he brought the idea back to Detroit and he found the, the Grandy Ballroom was kind of in a little bit of a not too bad of disarray. They, you know, it worked out in his in, in what he wanted to rent. And it was an area of Detroit that wasn't. um as popular as some of the other, you know, I mean, uh-huh. Detroit is a, is a massive landmass. I mean, it's, it's a huge 144 square miles of, of city. So, um, it, it could fit, you know, Chicago, Boston, and New York within its kind of city limits, if you will. So parts of the city, you know, during, you know, during its heyday were, were, you know, some good, populated. some bad. <laughs> exactly. So this was this was kind of on the sketchy part of town, yeah. and um, not not a place where you would drop in a, an entertainment for white suburban kids. But he had a go at it, and um, and then just started making it happen, and then and kids started showing up. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like um, there was you know it probably started out kind of slow. I would imagine. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. who were some of the early bands that started playing there and, and how did they, uh, you know, and then I know that eventually some of the bigger bands came there. Um, sure. but, uh, they must've had to start out kind of small. Yeah, no, it, it, exactly. It started out as just, uh, local bands. And so, and, and you got to remember that, you know, 66 is just like what's going on nationally what's going on sure. globally with with music and is is rock and roll even a term at this point so you know the beatles are in the forefront of it the rolling stones are in the forefront of it but you, and then you have bands like you know herman's hermits and these other bands but what is rock and roll and, and what's going on in detroit at the time so you've got motown which is you know is a r&b and, and it's its own stamp i mean detroit and michigan as a as a state and detroit as a city has always been in the forefront with with breaking music and, and at the advent of newer you know uh, hip hop and house music and and big band I mean jazz it's it's just every kind of genre has points towards Detroit and Michigan so um, at this point you know um, uh, the suburban 
white kids are looking for an outlet and they're finding, you know, um, copying the Beatles, copying the Rolling Stones. And, and what Russ was looking for were, for, were bands that were doing their own thing, that were playing their own music. And uh-huh. so um, they, uh, the early bands would be, the, well, the first band was the MC5. Oh, they I were mean, the first band to play there. I didn't realize. Yeah, that. so they were. Yeah, wow. so the, um, in fact, um, on the opening night was a MC5, and then another band called the Chosen Few. And within the Chosen Few was the future guitarist for the Stooges, Ron uh-huh. Ashton. Oh, and wow. uh, yep, and then a, um, a singer that came into a band called SRC, Scott Richardson. And so um, they were local bands. I mean, at the time, Mitch Ryder was you know kind of heavy uh-huh. in detroit and, and and globally or nationally anyways and so um he would have been one of the first bands um and uh and then when these when this place opened up and gave you know these local kids a place to play they started forming bands and so um early wow. incarnations of um glenn fry with his band the mushrooms you know uh, and, and early wow. bands with doug feiger from uh um, uh, the knack, um, and Don was, um, and, and so these different bands started just forming and becoming, you know, uh, grandy acts. And, and then, um, he slowly started bringing in some of the national acts. One of the first bigger national acts would have been the grateful dead. Uh-huh. So he brought in the, the kind of San Francisco vibe, cause that's what they were pairing us against. Right. Right. Was, right. Well, know, and that's what I understand. That, and, yeah. and when Russ went out, Russ Biggs, Gig, Russ Gibb went out to uh, San Francisco and saw the Fillmore. Uh, he got interested in that psychedelic sound and, you know, tried to bring it to the Grandy Ballroom. That, that's exactly, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost like a quote right from the movie right there. So it was just exactly what he was. Um, Russ was, you know, very entrepreneurial. He was very visionary. He, he knew um, and he had his kind of finger on the pulse of what, the kids were looking for and looking to do. He was also a school teacher. At the yeah. Time. So, I mean, this guy's yeah, that's, that probably wouldn't so, fly these yeah. days. <laughs> school teacher. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, well, you, you don't know who has podcasts these days too. Right. Yeah. So you, you could say it, it could be a, an outlet for a teacher, but he was, he was doing this, you know, um, and, um, and, and, and enjoying each bit of it. And so, um, um, Grateful Dead kind of came into it, so it kind of brought that kind of vibe to it. And then before you know it, he's bringing, you know, these 60s bands that are like Steve Miller. And, um, wow, uh, you start going into a bunch um, all the West Coast bands that were kind of coming out there. He brought in the blues from uh, Chicago, Buddy Guy, ah. uh, you know, and B.B. Uh, King and, and the, all of Freddie King and, and Albert King. And, and then he's pairing these acts with Iggy Pop. He's uh-huh. pairing these acts with Sun Ra. He's pairing these acts with Alice Cooper and B.B. King. So you're so you might be going there to see Alice Cooper, but then you're seeing B.B. You know, so people were kind of, get, you know, cross pollinating, I guess. Would be uh-huh. way of doing yeah. It, you know, I mean, uh, as a as a fan of music, I love, you know, I'll find some good music out of any genre. But, you know, some people kind of you know, keep their, keep, stay in their lane. And, and then all of a sudden you're at, you're, you know, where, what's a better place to see, to get um, introduced you know, to bands like that. Yeah. And a live element. Right. And yeah. So, um, and so that, that kind of, so on any given night, they have these very diverse kind of bills that, that brought people and, and um, it kind of drew a community and, it, and it goes back to the area that it was in. It was, uh, you know, a, a heavy um, uh, black community. And, um, and so, um, on kind of what would be, you know, uh, off the beaten path. And so it, as a white suburban kid, which drew most of the, you know, the audience, mm-hmm. um, you know, you they had, had to, to really travel to get there and, uh, you, you wanted, took them out yeah, of their own. You had to, yeah. You had to want to get, make that effort. And, uh, and they did. And they, and so like you said, when they started out, yeah, he said maybe that first night, the MC five chosen few, um, they partnered with, um, the, um, 
local university, Wayne State University, and got on there. Uh, every college has kind of that underground paper. Right. Has that feel to get that out there. You know, um, this is just the beginning edge of FM radio. If you, you know, uh -huh. I mean, we take it for granted now, but there was a beginning of that. So there was a, a point where AM radio was the only thing that was there. And, and FM was this kind of more underground right, right. kind of thing. You know, AVX was on board with it. So um, he slowly kind of, you know, didn't have the internet, didn't have the, you know, the kind of, it was all word of mouth. Um, he, he kind of found select people in the, in the film speaks to that. Like, you know, John Sinclair, who was kind of a, you know, um, a patriarch of all this and, uh, and, and quite the uh, instrumental in, in bringing some of these other bands from San Francisco and from New York and responsible for getting, you know, Janis Joplin and, and these other bands to kind of come there and, and, uh, and, and, by selecting this group, you know, he had this kind of tribe that helped out build this stuff, you know, so really kind of right. interesting. Well, it was John Sinclair the photographer, too, or is there another guy, Sinclair, that uh, did a lot of the photography that's, that, uh, cap that was captured there? Sure. So that was his wife, Lenny Sinclair. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So John Sinclair, um, John Sinclair. Wow. If you're not familiar with him, I, I, I give you, um, you know, a, a homework, um, take a look at this. Guy <laughs> he, he is a character. He, um, he ended up becoming the manager for the MC five and, and the manager for Iggy pop and the Stooges. So, I mean, right off the bear, that, that's a yeah. street cred right there. Um, and then he also, uh, helped start what they called the fifth estate, which was a underground kind of paper, you know, um, in, uh, the Detroit area that kind of spoke to the college and the kind of more hippie type community of that area. But in, um, in 69, early 70, he actually got busted for selling two joints to an undercover cop and went to jail. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and so at the time this was a you know a felony offense, and so yeah. he went to um, major prison, and um, they did a benefit, and um, actually, um, I mean, the, to to speak of how high was so John Lennon, who I would say is probably one of the most profound songwriters in history, right? Um, wrote a song and brought it to Detroit and called it, it's called free John Sinclair and, and sang it to, uh, at this benefit at one in the morning. And, and by the next morning at eight o'clock, they were take, getting him out of prison. So I who, mean, who is, um, who is the songwriter? It, it, uh, uh, John Lennon. John. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then that, <laughs> that ended up getting this guy released from jail. That what a story. Well, that the is. whole, the whole, Free John Sinclair uh -huh. and put a movement behind it. Yeah, wow. it so, I mean, the concert itself was like a five, six hour event. It had um, John Lennon, it had Stevie Wonder, it had Bob Seger, wow. it had multiple. I mean, it's just a, yeah, if you, if you got a chance to. They're, they're, they filmed it, and it, it kind of, you know, it was, a, you know, the early 70s. I don't think there was everything that ever kind of really came out of it you know, in a feature thing, but you can, yeah, I haven't seen anything. Of it. Stuff. Yeah. 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 So, but, um, you know, yeah, so this I mean, place, major. this place closed in 1972. You know, what, what connection did you have with it? What, what made you decide you wanted to do a movie about it or a documentary about it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I get asked it all the time. So I'm in the video production business. I do commercial work and I do, um, you know, other documentary stuff. I do a, a, a lot of broadcast television and I've, I've been in it since I'm 55. So I've been in it since 87. When I turned 21, I went to broadcast school and um, uh, had the luxury of working with a lot of my heroes, you know, um, at the time growing up. I mean, um, everybody from Sting and Aerosmith and Buffett and Stones oh, and The Who. Wow. And, and so music has been part of my life and part of my, and I come from a very big Italian family and music from my dad, from Sinatra and Dean Martin and, and, and big bands with, and, and uncles that played in bands and would come over at night. So music was just part of growing up and, and part of the DNA of being in Detroit, as you know, oh, yeah. the lineage of Motown and you know, the lineage of, you know, um, the Grandy and you know, the lineage of, uh, I mean, you know, pick a, pick a decade and I could tell you 
10, 12 bands that went national from here. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it's always been, you know, a good fruitful area for incredibly great music. And so um, at some point, and this was um, in about 2007, 2008, I was with a good friend of mine and he was a local disc jockey for um, one of the major rock stations here in Detroit. And we were kind of chatting it up and we were talking about all the things we had done he got into radio. I got into television and commercial work and broadcast. And, and he kind of threw out one of those, you know, well, what haven't you done? <laughs> and I was, and I said, wow, you know, I kind of always wanted to make a documentary and, you know, and, and he's, well, why don't you? And I kind of stepped up to the challenge. I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. We'll see what we can do. And, and, and then um, I gave myself a timeline. So like, if I don't do this and, you know, because, how many people set out to make documentaries or do things that, you know, write a book or, 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 you know, sail right. across the sea or, or, you know, they have that, that bucket list and, and they don't. So I kind of, I'm, I'm very timeline. I'm very list oriented. I'm very ABC kind of thing. And, um, you know, uh, so, um, I gave a go at it and, and it just started coming along. And, and before you know it, one interview got the next. And so before, you know, I'm sitting in front of BB King and I'm sitting in front of Al Scooper and I'm sitting in front of Roger Daltrey and they're telling me the story and they're, <laughs> and they're, they're, they're validating the fact that the Grandview ballroom was such an incredible place that, in fact, that's how I got these interviews with these uh-huh. people because I had worked with them in the commercial space or in the production space and the, in the concert space and the entertainment world. But, now I'm reaching out to them to say, hey, would you be part of this documentary that I don't know if it'll ever get played? I, I mean, yeah. I, I had to be truthful with them. And, and, and so um, I would talk to their manager. I'd say, listen, I'll be honest with you. If the, ask them if the Granny Ballroom had um, uh, impact on their career, would they be part of my film? And nine out of ten of these managers would say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know the grand, and they would go back and ask, you know, BB King, and they'd go ask, you know, and, and then they, yeah, that's amazing. Did it, they, it really? I mean, that that lays testament to how how important it was for that. So, and, and so you cool. started out with the intention of creating a documentary about the Grandy Ballroom. Did it? Did that evolve? I mean, did your oh, totally. intention change as things went along? Did it actually start as a a documentary about the Grandy Ballroom, and did it start like about Detroit music, and then it evolved into, hey, this is a place that everyone knows about. You yeah. know, how, how yeah, did it? That's a great question. Yeah, it um, it actually no, it, it it's always had been about the Grandy Ballroom. Okay. Um, because um, because all roads kind of led to uh, the Grandy. Every yeah. time I talked to someone, that they would have this kind of like, you know great you know friends of mine that were that are older than me you know um that would say oh you know what um i was in a band in the early late 60s early 70s and we opened for the grateful dead Uh you know and i was just it was just always kind of like you know mind-blowing and i would read interviews and and and, you know like i said uh, as a as a fan of music and, and on a you know written word or or you know, over terrestrial radio or any of the internet radio podcast, always trying to find how, how people get inspired. And, um, but the documentary, I will say originally was, I thought it was going to be more on just a musical piece. And then as people started telling the story, because with a documentary, you can't script it. So I could plan that I'm going to talk to, you today about a subject but what my answers or what your answers will be will will send the the storyline to a different space right yes, so right and, and so i can't i can't control that and so as a filmmaker as a storyteller i could do a couple things i could i could twist it and make it into my own feelings and my own words which wouldn't do good for anybody or i could let the story breathe and become what it's going to be uh-huh. and what end up coming of this, at least from my output and, and from what, you know, everyone's told me since it came out is that it turned more into a cultural piece. They saw how Detroit, you know, and because, you know, again, um, how do you find this place in a bad part of Detroit? And then if you watch the film and, and I, I don't know if you've seen it yet, or if you're, if 
you're waiting. Well, I've seen the trailer, but I'm um, looking forward yeah, to yeah. seeing the film at uh, the Acorn on the, on the yeah. 11th. Yeah, no, I'm excited about that too. It sounds like a really cool venue. So it, it's um, it's kind of uh, one of those things that um, when you see the film, you'll come. I, I, I this is my takeaway that I'm hoping that happens is that you come into the space thinking you're going to see a musical music documentary and you leave getting a little bit of cultural history about Detroit. That's yeah. Kind of what, yeah. Was there any other venues like the Grandy Ballroom at that time or was this the place? Like this is the it, it place. It started where... to populate. It started to populate more places. So and what what turned um, uh, Russ into a uh, into a really good business endeavor was people were playing in New York at the Fillmore and then they were coming across, you know, and at that point, if you were on a plane or mostly driving, cause these are all, I mean, the production value at this time are, are guys in the van, even yeah. cream and these, you know, I mean, they didn't have these mega tour buses and big tours like that. So they were kind of like, you know, they were looking for places to play. So they were playing, you know, in, in Boston and there was places in Philly. And, and so now they're coming across to, to head towards, you know, Chicago and, and St. Louis and then, and on to LA and San Francisco. And so they have a stopping point. So, you know, as, as Russ made this in, you know, a uh, place, it became a place to go to. And, and then as the Grandy got, bigger and and you know more popular came through and yeah pop, and definitely more popular yeah other places started pop you know uh-huh. popping up in detroit and and throughout the country i mean it's a, it was the advent of that time playing for you know nationally how large of a venue was it how many um, how many seats and stuff sure so um it didn't it was a ballroom in the truest sense so right everyone stood on and, the floor uh-huh. you know um but you know um estimating uh, fire marshals, uh, <laughs> they said maybe, you know, 2,500, but on oh, okay. a good night, maybe, you know, 3,000 hanging out the rafters. Right, I don't right. know, you know, so crazy kind of place, a lot of, yeah. you know, so, like, a lot of debauchery. So, like, size of the Chicago Theater, or even the Fillmore, I think that was about that size, too, or the, um, you know, um, it, it kind Winterland. of, Winterland. Like, yep, exactly. They had those size venues. Yep, exactly. I'd say Winterland, Fillmore, um, Avalon Ballroom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Fillmore East and, and um, New York. Uh, yeah, in New York. So, uh, and then there was a jump to the places like in Detroit, anyways, uh, Cobo Arena, which was, you know, like a 12,000 seater that would have been for Hendrix or the Stones. Uh-huh, you know, there right. were bands that were too popular, you know, that were never going to squeeze of, in know, there. The doors, yeah, I, I, it's almost easier to say what bands of that era didn't play there uh-huh. because so many bands did. I mean, the first American tour for Zeppelin, for Pink Floyd, for Cream, for The Who, for, you know, um, name a band, probably they played there first. And then, but the ones that didn't are Hendrix. The Hendrix doors. never played there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, popularity-wise, they just rose. They went cream to right. the top, you know, right to the top. The right, stuff. right. But so, Janice made it there, you know. She uh, Janice she was one she, of the twenty-seven. She, first, she, yep, she played her first cut with the um, Big Brothers. Big Brother so, and the Holding um, Company, yeah. Yep. So, and there, in fact, there's some live recordings that are on some of her, you know, that just recently got released. So, and and, and it, it's you'll see in the film. I mean, um, the the. Dave Miller, who's the MC for the, you know, brought the bands on the stage, uh-huh. um, even had some of these people stay at his house. So, I mean, what you're going to see yeah. in the film is um, home, some home movies from Dave Miller of Cream at uh-huh. his house, having, having Christmas dinner. And, um, uh, I, I mean, I dug deep for some great footage. Yeah, how first, people were yeah. generous in giving you these kinds of uh, foot, this, this kind of footage. How, do you, how were you able to get your hands on some of the, uh, yeah, that you kind know, of stuff? So, so 2012, when the film came out, just prior to that, I mean, now we think of it in, in terms like it's so simple, but it was really the beginning of social media at that point. So Facebook That's right. um, was just kind of coming out. So I kind of recognized that and, and started a little Facebook kind of 
you know, props to it and, um, and, and did a, just a reach said, um, if anybody has any footage or, you know, because none of this, a lot of the stuff didn't exist or didn't have a place to go now, you know, I, well, and now, now YouTube <laughs> and YouTube, you, you can know, find so, almost any, you know, any, uh, home movie on YouTube. If you look hard enough, if, if you look, yep. And then there's a couple, there's a couple, uh, actual filmmakers that do kind of a home movie, you know, collective every once in a while. And they do some wild things with that stuff, but, um, no. So it was, it was a very kind of grassroots, uh, effort. I, I'm in the business. So I have access to studios and great equipment and, 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 uh, obviously access to incredible musicians. Um, and, uh, tried to tell the story from not only from the musician standpoint from back in the day on a local level, but on a national level and on a global level, and then also thought about how these bands from that era in Detroit influenced artists on, you know, so we've got people in the film like Slash, who was influenced by the uh -huh. MC5 and, and Iggy Pop, but wasn't from Detroit. We got um, uh, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. Again, not from Detroit, but heavily influenced by these bands. Yeah. Um, Lemmy Did from Motorhead. So, I mean, there was connections that these guys are bringing back to, you know, all roads go to the Lead back to, yeah. yeah. Now, had they attended shows like Lemmy and Slash? Had they attended shows? No, no, no. Slash is my age and, and Tom Morello and, and, and um, uh, yeah, Lemmy course. was in a band earlier called Hawkwind and, and he kind of made mention that he said he was there, but it didn't kind of fit in the, in the timeline. And so, you know, and I'm, who, who yeah. might argue with Lemmy? Right, right. Uh, <laughs> Certainly not during the interview. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but no, these other bands that played there, you know, so, um, and that wasn't really what I was looking for. I was just trying to kind of validate the outside, you know, because how easy it's, is it to say that, you know, um, Chicago's got the best hot dog. But, you know, I mean, if you live in Chicago, it's the best hot dog. But you can go and play, you know, so, I mean, you just, want people from outside of Chicago to say, yeah, he's got the best hot dog. Right? Yeah, so, I yeah. Mean, it's just, you know, on the musical side of things. You know, and to um, get access to those kinds of uh, individuals must have been really fascinating and and a lot of fun. That's that's oh so nice gosh. that they that they you know gave you their time and sat down with you and and talked with you about this. Is this was this sort of the first opportunity you'd had to to really dig in and get to talk to some of these people? Or it sounds like you had been well, doing prior things. I, that, yep, I, I I had done commercial work with the. Rolling Stones and commercial work with um, The Who and, and so um, but this was the first time that it was my project. Usually I get contracted and I, and I get, you know um, I'm able to, and I'm able to you know, kind of be in front of these people because of, you know um, the assignment, the client that I'm working with, or the project specifically and so this was all my own baby and, and produced it, directed it, found the people you know, found a great editor that I worked with that cut things together, did all the research on it, did all the licensing. I mean, so it was, you know, it was a, it was a lesson in futility. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so big I, I gave myself five years. I finished it in three and a half. The first show out the gate, we showed it to the Detroit Film Theater as part of the Detroit Art Institute. Um, two sold out shows in, in about 20 minutes. So um, 1,200 people per show. And, wow. and, and all of a sudden it was like, wow, this is something. Um, we did, went to the Michigan theater in Ann Arbor, same thing, uh -huh. two shows sold out 1600 people. Now, next thing I know, I get a phone call from Michael Moore. He wants it at the Traverse city film festival. Oh, I um, saw your interview at the Traverse city film festival, uh, 2010, yeah, yeah. I want to say. Um, or maybe actually it, it would have been 2013. So the film oh, okay. came out in 12. So then we started, <clears throat> We ended up doing... And that was through um, Michael Moore? That's amazing. He's another Michigan guy from Flint. Yep, yep he's a Michigan guy. And, yeah, a, exactly. and a documentary maker. Oh, incredible. One of the best in yeah. the business. So then, yep. And so then uh, he it, it played in Chicago at a film festival there. Um, it played at the Rock and Roll Hall. It ended up doing over 35 festivals everywhere as far as Australia, um, Japan, Europe... Uh, all 
uh, won Best Film Festival in, in Vegas. I won Best Direct New Director in, in Los Angeles. Wow. Um, we it, it, I won an Emmy for it. So I mean, it, it, terrific. It went, yeah. So I went. Yeah. Thank you. So PBS picked up on it, and um, we went to out of the. I think there's 300 markets or so for PBS. We, we got um, just over 200 and they're all the major markets. So it got national response, um, global response. Uh, I'm very proud of it. And, and it, it, it's wild because 2000. So I, I'm thinking about it now as I'm talking, it's, it's basically been out for 10 years and, and, and the ask for it to be at a theater like the acorn theater. Um, it warms my heart that people still, yeah. you know, that, I mean, it's still relevant. Um, it's, it's a, it's a historical kind of piece. And, and, I, and I hope that it shows props to not only Detroit music, but the music of that time and, and not just music, but there was the artistry that came about from it. The, the posters that were, and I right. think, um, I think Laura Grimshaw, that, Gary's yes. is, is, is part of that. And, and, Gary Grimshaw, I mean, when you see him in the film, you're going to see a, a, a true he's, artist. And he's the artist who did all the all the concert posters and stuff from that he generation. He did the majority of them. Yeah. He did, he did the, and, and so, I mean, now they're literally, they're works of art. So they're pieces right. that are, are uh, original pieces are probably ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 for the originals. So, but these guys were just much like the musicians, they just wanted to be part of the scene. So they, you know, you couldn't go to, you know, fonts are us and make these fonts. They, they yeah. made, they're handmade. <laughs> they, they, they're handmade. They're, they're printed out They're You know, his, his way of, of printing the stuff and, um, and, and using different colors. Um, you know, as, as, as great a guy Russ was, he was very frugal. So in, in doing these posters, it was cheaper to do what they called a two pass, which meant uh-huh. you could do two colors yeah. and pass it twice. So these guys, these, these posters figured out a way of mixing colors and layering things so that it looks like there's 50 colors. Oh, I mean, wow. I don't even, uh-huh. I, you know, I mean, I don't know how the hell. And, and, and those fonts that they come with, you know, take a look at any of those posters and you will, get transported right to the sixties. I mean, it, it just, you know, I mean, you can't think of those fonts and you can't look at those posters without thinking the sixties, even though it's a, you know, if someone tried to reproduce it today, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. You know, I understand so, there's going to be a pre-party at uh, three pillars music in Benton Harbor, where they're going to have uh, some of these posters displayed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, the night I, before on um, uh, uh, the 10th, yeah, I believe. That's I believe. I, in fact, I know you're right. I know that Laura's part of the event uh, for the for the festival. And and and, and as was, as I was screening the movies, you know, back in 2012 to 2014, Gary and, and um, uh, Laura came with us to a lot of the festivals and, and, you know, brought some of the art and, and were able to talk. We, we went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame together and, and his art up in the in the hall i mean so you know to 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 be with an artist that's got stuff that's in there was kind of unique and um no it's been it's been a it's been a wild ride and 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 i'm you know very proud of what it did and um and you know i'm still in the business i still you know doing commercial work and and quite busy and you know quite proud of the stuff i'm doing now but that was a a really amazing time oh i bet do you have any plans to do something you know do another movie like this or a, a so documentary. What? I, yeah. So, um, PBS had loved the film so much. They they kind of encouraged me to do other projects. And um, last March, we put out another. And, and and what I kind of found out through this, the the film part of this is that there were so many great artists that were Detroit based that didn't get recognized that needed kind of a platform for this. So instead of doing a documentary on one person like a documentary about just like john sinclair mm-hmm. um we started a um uh, episodic show um and we're taking uh so we shot the first one this was this happened all just pre-covid so we're starting to kind of get our wheels underneath it again but um 
the um, it, it's called um, Six Degrees with Tino G. Uh, Tino Gross is a local musician who's played with Bob Dylan and John Lee Hooker and and uh, tons of artists has written and recorded with them. And he kind of comes in as a, um, uh, the host of the show and, and he interviews different people. And then we have a select group of musicians that they kind of play um, a song by that musician. So the first episode we did was um, with the original guitarist from Motown, Dennis Coffey. And we brought him into the studio, so we interviewed him, and then we do a, a musical segment with them with this kind of Detroit all-star band, and and we got great review. That that one also got an Emmy nomination for it too, and and then um, so we're we're looking to do more episodes of that, and and as it turned out with the with the whole COVID thing, I, I've been doing a lot of broadcast and live events, and and I'm extremely busy with that, and, and you know quite a bit of traveling and stuff like right. that. You know, so um, no, life is good. I like I mentioned, I'm living the dream. I've got two yeah. beautiful kids and a beautiful wife that supports me with all this stuff. So um, no, I've got, uh, and everyone's happy and healthy. So what more can you ask for? Right, right. right. <laughs> so um, I don't know if the movie touches on this, but uh, the place was only around for about six or seven years. Does it talk about what happened? Why? Why it closed? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, All right. So that's a spoiler. So we won't get into that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, can you talk about, you know, some of the people uh, you did mention a number of people that you interviewed. Um, uh, I, I, do you have a, a number of, uh, how many of the people you interviewed? Anybody we left out from people? before? Um, okay. Let's see. Uh, Alice Cooper, Mark Farner, Ted Nugent, Don was, um, uh, let's see, B.B. King, Roger Daltrey, uh, uh, wow. Henry Rollins, Tom Morello, Slash, Lemmy. Um, I, I know I'm missing. And then the artists, uh, you know, uh, Gary Grimshaw, uh-huh. um, Wayne Kramer, Dennis Thompson from all from the MC5, John, uh-huh. uh, James Williamson from the uh, uh, Stooges. Um, uh, it, it, but you know what? I, I think you're going to find the most captivating are the people that you don't recognize their names when you walk in the theater, when you uh-huh. see the people that are like Dave Miller, who's the MC and, and, and what he brought to this. And then uh, there's a, a, a lady by the name of um, Ruth Hoffman that took these incredible pictures. She was one of the first people that I contacted because I found her, her pictures online and um, oh, really? Ruth Hoffman and and how she plays into the story uh-huh. and, and and Lenny Sinclair and and how her pictures and her stuff plays into this. So it, the the names draw you in, but it's so but it, yeah, the the real stories from the people that, the, that yeah, you know, were and, and like I said, I'm I'm very I'm very happy with the the storytelling part of it. I, I think I, I did, and, and you know what I mean uh, to get the the accolades that I've done for for at that point it was a first time producer director so to come out of the gates and get the you know an emmy and, and all these uh, you know awards and stuff is was really kind of you know i thought well, well this happens to everybody <laughs> yeah <laughs> <right>. <laughs> of course it, yeah <laughs> well and i i remember from the trailer that um you also interviewed patrons just people that you know had had been regulars there and the kind of um uh the kind of things that they took away from it sounds like it was a a very intimate, uh, environment, you know, the real low stage. And so, you know, the band was just right there and, uh, not much of a, of a, of a backstage. And, and, you know, if you wanted to just go and say hi to the band and that happened and there wasn't a lot of security going on and, um, just there didn't a, have to be. So there's, yeah, at this point, there, it was before was, people thought about was, doing bad things. There's stories of, of the bands, you know, patrons loading the bands in and out. Because, oh, wow. I mean, that, I mean you know, just you, a big the cooperative. band pulled up. Yeah. The band pulled up and, and they needed help. And so, you know, and, and so that's what I think. Again, that's why I fall back and say it's more of a cultural piece because that was the biggest thing. Once I started doing these interviews, I couldn't figure out how. We're talking late 60s, Detroit, um, Vietnam, 
major riots, biggest riots in U.S. history, you know, 42. I mean, this is blocks away from the Grandy where the riots started, uh-huh. you know. So, and, and these people are coming to me, and they're crying when they're telling me these stories of how incredible this place was. And I was just like, I, you know, I mean, I love music. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, this changed your life. And, and then they would tell me their story. So, you know, an interview that was supposed to be, in fact, any of the interviews, even, even, B.B. King's and Roger Daltrey's, they were, you know, they're very select when, you know, like, and you do these things for a living, right? So you'll call someone and they'll say, okay, um, we'll give you 10 minutes of your time, right? So, I mean, who, who, uh, name some of the people that you've interviewed for your radio show. So they, when you call them, you've got a block of time that you get, right? You asking me? Well, yeah, I'm asking kinda. you. So like, <laughs> yeah, so, like, yeah, you know, so if you're reaching out to an artist, and you've got to their manager and you say, you know, I'd like to interview so-and-so, they'll say, okay, call them at 4 o'clock. Right, right. 4.15, right? Yeah, there you um, go. And, and, and these interviews were like that. They were a schedule out of a day while they're touring. And um, they would, you know, they would say I would have 20 minutes. And I'd look at my watch and it's an hour into it. I'd look over in the corner and I could see the manager <laughs> kind of like huffing and puffing. I'm like, I'm not going to tell B.B. King to shut up. Yeah, right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I'm not telling Roger Dalton to. Yeah. Oh, B.B. King stuff. was, uh, was he was amazing. I mean, and he he could tell a story. And, you know, sometimes you do it on stage. I remember seeing him a couple times. And he just knew that you were in the presence of greatness when you talked to a guy like B.B. King, uh, especially around that time of year. Uh, that time oh. of his life, you know, in 2000, uh, you know, late 2000 into the 2010 that's you know he he was in his mid eighties I want to say at that point his his manager who I got to befriend um, when I reached out to her she said um, she's they said they were going to do the interview and I was like you know I mean a little surprised but you know I couldn't show it I was like oh that's great you know? yeah and, and and then to that point I was kind of like okay does he really have a story to tell about this? I mean, he's been 250 dates out of the year. For right. 80, you know, 70 years. I mean, for that to, some, yeah. He, yeah. Did this make a difference? I mean, he played there, you know, maybe 20 times. I mean, that's not a, you know, um, um, and she came back and she said, you know what? So she goes, I must get 70 to 80 requests a day for, um, interviews, interviews. Uh-huh. And, and, and wow. 99% of them are, why is his guitar name Lucille? Yeah. And she goes, and so we sat down collectively and said, if people are reaching out to us for other B.B. King stories that haven't been told, like the one I'm telling, like how is Detroit, you know, how it affected his career. She said, we jump at these opportunities. So we applaud you for doing this, you know, and, um, yeah, and yes, he does know what, yeah. And so, so I mean, that in itself kind of, you know, like I said, it, it, it validates it. It makes, you know, you could, you'll see the people on camera, they're engaging. They want to be there. I, I wasn't, there was no teeth pulling for interviews. There was no, you know, I mean, um, and and just like anybody else, you know, you, you're a quality interviewer. You, you kind of, that last question is always like, what do you want to add to it? And, and that's usually the best answer. <laughs> so they, yeah. You know, I, I kind of put, is there anything you want to add about the Grandier Detroit or something? And they would have wax poetically something that they were holding back. You know, all my, my you know, hard thought research questions that I was so proud of, you know, kind of fell by the wayside because of, what came from their heart made the most sense, you know? So this place built, you know, from 1927 and had, it had, um, the Grandy had a very grand life for a long period of time. And then when they reopened it in 66, was it remodeled to, you know, bring back all the glamour and, and, uh, all the beauty that had been there back when it was first opened as a, as a ballroom or was it, uh, an open space where just like, you know, rough floor and and piled people in or you know what i mean i mean what was yeah. yeah yeah no so so that's a great question so um a couple things to that point so um and, and russ would tell you you know um he's passed and, and god bless him for for being the, the 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 man behind the scenes on this stuff but um he um he bought it or rented it from uh the owners strictly because of a price point 
and didn't know what he was getting into. What he what ended up happening though, which was the surprise that kind of lay there, is that when this place was built in the late twenties, this was pre amplification. Uh-huh. So this was big band. So there was this kind of band shell, if you will, that the bands, the big bands would play on and it would project out into this, you know, I mean, so yeah, I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So the stage is kind of this, its own sort of shell and it projected the music out there naturally. uh, And and so, so what all the artists would tell me is that if you were a good band, you sounded great. Uh If you were a great band, you sounded incredible. And so a lot of these bands were like, this is the music I heard in my head. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it kind of stepped up their game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Gotcha, so people right. wanted to play there. And, and these other, you know I mean? For, uh, you'll, you'll find a lot of like the, the really great sounding bootlegs from back in that day kind of come from this, the, from the grant. Cause again, it's, it's a microphone hanging over, you know, I mean the, the, the way of, you know, amplification and, and recording back in this time was was very you know primitive to what we have right today. it was so, invented um, at that time with uh you know, was, Owsley from the in- grateful dead you know they 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 really totally. that's where they kind of stepped up the amplification in the pa system i mean i remember seeing that movie with um the beatles and they were playing at um uh at uh, comiskey park and they had these like tinny speakers you know, every 20 feet along the field. And that was the amplification for the whole Comiskey Park. I mean, they, it was ancient back these, then. These, like, little horns. Oh, yeah. It was all developing back then. Of, yep, exactly. And, and people were just kind of, you know, I mean, if you look back at those YouTube videos like you were talking about, you'll see the singer might be singing into two, maybe even three microphones just to create stereo. The music out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so, and, 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 um, so um, it was, you know, pre- so the 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 place encouraged that kind of music. Um, the the fact that it was kind of outskirts of Detroit gave a little bit of a CD, a little bit of a decadent, you know. I mean, uh-huh. 60s, so you know, drugs, sex, rock and roll. I mean, it's all part of the movie, you know. Um, and um, it uh, it it kind of, you know, white kids from suburbia that are you know, 20 miles away could come there, be their alter ego for right, the, right. you know, for the weekend and, and, and do what they want to do. And, and, and then, you know, I mean, and, and again, we're talking about some of their friends that are just getting out of high school. Some of them are going off to Vietnam. Some of them are going off to college. Some of them, some of them aren't returning from Vietnam. Some, you know, I mean, yeah. so you, you know, um, the, I, I can't stress enough the, the riots of that time frame. Um, the, this was blocks away from the riot. And, and the fact that the Brandy, in fact, the, the movie starts out with it. So I'll let, I'll let it to speak for itself. But the fact that the Grandy didn't burn to the ground there's only uh-huh. one reason you'll find out in the film. You know? Oh, so, okay, good. Yeah. Can't wait. So um, another, just one, a couple more questions. So, you know, when you started to film the movie or get involved with the movie, did you have access to the, the, the actual Grandy ballroom first, or did you start interviewing people first? You know, what was kind of the order of that? When, when was the first time you had to actually get in there and see what it looked like inside? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, um, basically, um, you know, uh, like any project that I take on research, research, research. So, um, everything, um, starts with and ends with Russ Gibb. So he's the gatekeeper, right? Uh So he, he's the, he's kind of the first go-to that was, you know, uh, like I mentioned, I'm a very kind of list oriented producer, director kind of thing. So I, I made a list of, of wants, of people I want in front of the camera and Russ was the top of it. And, um, and, and then I'd been by the Grandy and, and at the time frame that I went there and still to this day, it is owned by, um, uh, a black church that's like, um, has residency right in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they bought the building, you know, as a, um, uh, because of where their other parish is, not knowing, 
what the Grandy was. Uh-huh. I just think they, you know, there wasn't a history of it. There wasn't any, any placards. There wasn't any historical markers. It was just a old, you know, one of many old dilapidated buildings in Detroit, in that, and especially in that era, in that area, um, you know, right off of uh, Grand River and, and, uh, and Joy Road. And so it's a, uh, that area, as much as Detroit has been, renaissance and resurgence that area still is considered kind of outskirts there's not a lot of entertainment uh-huh. there's not a lot of reason to be there it's, there's an artist vibe through there but there isn't really anything past that um but um so the first thing was russ and then i could tell when i sat with him this had been done many times before and he made that and he was very school t- teacher very kind of looking at me like you know kind of feeling me out like okay so i've sat in this chair 20 other times and nobody's ever finished the story nobody's ever told it correctly what who do you think you you know i mean you're not of age to have, have been there what is your you know give, give me some background give me some some reason to validate my existence in front of your camera yeah yeah you know why this and, time yeah why the, you know who, are you going to follow through with this and and so he came to the studio and he saw the level of production that i work at and, and i'm very proud of this it's, it's, you know and so everything's done on you know i mean although it's it was an independent film everything's you know um some of my favorite comments um by the artist don was had called me when he had after he viewed it and, and said it was hauntingly beautiful the way it was shot. Oh, and that's nice. So, I mean, so, so those, yeah, exactly. So when you're getting these, you know, and the, and, and it brought this kind of resurgence of these, these people that I met for 20 minutes, maybe an hour to come back, you know, Wayne Kramer, because of the interview in the film, we've become friends. And I'm, I, I, I work with him on one of his, he's got a project that he does, um, uh, uh, he, he brings um, guitars into the incarcerated, um, a nonprofit organization called Jail Guitar Doors, where he um, uh, brings musicians and, and guitar. So because of the film, I got introduced to people, what they do on their real life. And so, um, uh, you know, um, it's it was a game changer from that aspect. I, I kind of broke that fourth wall, if you will, of, of actually, you know, becoming friends with a lot of people that were in the film because the it's a the very film, intimate thing you're you're interviewing yeah. them you're you're hearing their you know deepest stories and and uh it binds you it bounds you to them yeah 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 exactly exactly so, so um yeah. my last question louder than love how did you know what what what's the origin of the name of the movie louder than love louder than love okay so um I was working with a, um, uh, I was working for ABC news and we were doing, um, a project here for 2020 and, um, a producer, a friend of mine came in from New York and, and we were doing, um, uh, a project and the project was as much as what happened during the thing. So we're, we're kind of, we're driving around through the city and, um, uh, I took her from Birmingham, which is a very nice area outside of Detroit. And then we're going back into Detroit city. And as you pass to, to get into Detroit, there's a city, there's a street called eight mile, which on one side of eight miles, Detroit. And then on the other side of eight mile is the suburbs. Uh-huh. And so, um, uh, I said, um, you know, we're pa- now we're going into Detroit and you can see as you pass this, you can see the difference in, um, and everything uh, from white to black, you could see the houses, right. you know, and, and so it's very, very evident. And, um, and, and I used to live at eight mile and Gratiot, So I'm very aware of this area and, and the, and the reasoning behind it, the residents of the eight mile. So we're going past it. And I said, and she goes, Oh, like the movie, Eminem's movie, eight mile. And she thought that eight mile was like eight, eight miles long like uh-huh. it took him eight miles to get to something. And I said, no, it's a, it's a division of white and black. And, and so I thought at that point, if I'm going to have a movie, I want the, 
the name of it to kind of have some background to it. So I'm glad you asked this question. Longest way to get the shortest answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so what the Grandy was for everybody was in 1968 was the summer of love. But in Detroit, it was gritty. It was raw. It was louder than love. Ah, good one. I like that. That's You're great. You're going to get a tattoo of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I'm coming to get you. Bro. Yeah, I'm yeah. Be there. I'm going to be there next Friday, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, week from Friday, February 11th at the Acorn Theater. Tony Denunzio, yeah. the director and producer of the movie Louder Than Love, the story of the Grandi Ballroom in Detroit. And uh, Tony, what a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it and look forward to meeting you uh, on February 11th. I'll be at the um, at the pregame thing there that they're going to have. So looking forward awesome. to it. No, thank you so much all for right. all you do. I'm, I'm really interested. I was checking out your stuff. You, you have a wonderful program and um, what an exciting uh, uh, place. I'm looking forward to the Acorn uh, Theater and I appreciate the support that they're, that they're putting towards us. That's, that's awesome. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And that was Tony Denunzio, the director, producer of the Louder Than Love movie, the story of the Groundy Ballroom in Detroit. And like I said, he's going to be here for uh, the movie screening, which is going to be at the Acorn Theater on February 11th. Get your tickets. There's also an event the night before at uh, Three Pillars Music in Benton Harbor. They're going to have um, the uh, uh, the art of uh, uh, the artist that was mentioned in the <laughs> during the podcast uh, radio show. So check it out. Uh, good night, everybody. You've been listening to Johnny Secret Stash. I'm John Goldman, and uh, we're on uh, Radio Harbor Country 106.7 FM out of Three Oaks, Michigan and 93.5 WRHZ out of Sawyer, Michigan. Good night, everybody.